I love the fact that your kids are learning the word and it's down in their hearts. Thy word, O Lord, have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That's happening in their lives and then they're also developing courage to stand for the word of God in front of people. What a great combination way to go. So today is the 10th. I chose for our proverb of the day, verse 24, the fear of the wicked will come upon him and the desire of the righteous will be granted. Uh, That's a good one. So today we're in week five of a series, scriptures that smash strongholds. And so far, the one-line description of our messages have started. I will go back to the beginning. Number one, I'm not a victim. Number two, I may never know why. Number three, I'm not smarter than God. Number four, (laughs) I need reviving. That was last week. And uh, jumping forward to next time, our message next week is going to be, I'm not my performance. And the one after that, which will be our last one, is I'm not too far gone. So uh, today we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. I haven't tell you today's title yet. We're going to come to that in a while. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, but let's pray before we get started. Lord, as we get into your word, this is the one thing that you honor even above your name. And um, so, Lord, I pray for uh, the release of your spirit upon our hearts, that today there would be just, even if it's just for this next few minutes, this time of, uh, of, of availability to what the whisperings of your, of your spirit would say to our souls, not because it's going to come through me or any human flesh, but instead, Lord, that we just yield this time to you and we ask God for you to speak to us. Lord, also, whatever is shared in the next few minutes that's chaff, let it blow away in the wind. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. 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 So um, uh, before we get into the scripture, I want to give you, I want us to just take a, a minute and do a 30,000-foot flyover of Christianity for the last couple thousand years. Is that all right? Okay, so... Um, this is going to be real generalizations, and if I go, you know, and I step on your toes, I'm sorry about that. I'm just going to go fast here um, and step on your toes. You'll know what I mean if I do. And, um, so um, <clears throat> way, way, way back at the very beginning, we read about it in the book of Acts. The Christians were kind of uh, meeting regularly together and rolling along just fine. Then over a period of hundreds of years, the organized church started to get uh, a little bit of problems. They kind of deteriorated a little bit as there was... Um, some de-emphasis of the Word of God over those centuries. And um, <clears throat> at, at a time, there, there was some schisms that happened, and um, what remained was called by lots of different things. One of the main veins was called the Catholic Church. And uh, by, the word, by the way, the word Catholic in the original Greek, that just, just, just simply means on the whole. It literally, literally means the universal church. Um, it's become known as a specific denomination, but that's not necessarily what the word means. Anyway, so that happened then, and then about a thousand, a little less than a thousand years um, after Christ, um, was something called that was brewing was called the Great Schism, and there was a break off between the Catholic Church of the day and what's called the Orthodox Church now, and um, and I think that happened because there was um, on a bunch of various points where they were drifting away again from the Word of God by both sides. All along, there have been splinter groups that have splintered off because they've diverged from the Word of God. And uh, that's why we hold to the Word of God and and try to stick there pretty closely um, as best we can. And then around 1517, you've heard of a guy named Martin Luther. He nailed 95 theses to the the door of the Wittenberg uh, Bible Chapel and basically um, aligned people were protesting, you know, many of the teachings of the church. And from that, we get our word Protestants. And um, that group of people were basically saying, 
This is what basic Christianity is. And they use the Latin word sola scriptura, which means this is the sole source. This is the only authority really truly from God, and that is the Bible, God's word. That's it, sola scriptura. And um, they basically said, these are, the, these are the basics of biblical Christianity. These are the things we believe in. They believe in the inerrancy of scripture. When it's in its original autograph, in the original text, it was free from error. It was um, f- totally infallible and, of course, totally inspired by God. And, and from this perfect word of God, we would get a handful of doctrines which cannot be just cannot be compromised. And some of those doctrines or things, for example, what we use, we would call substitutionary atonement, that, that Jesus paid, Jesus died and paid the price, the penalty for our sin, and so that a holy God could forgive us, that there, that, that took place, and that Jesus came of a virgin birth. And, um, you know, the idea behind that is more than just the biology involved, but that Jesus is God. Jesus came from a human mother, but his father was not of this earth, and um, so uh, he came from a divine father. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God becoming man, and and these doctrines just are not going to be compromised. So sola scriptura, that's what was going on there. And over time, um, the mainline Protestant denominations also moved away from the word of God bit by bit, and um, they started to say no to those Bible, Bible basics. And I'll give you an example of, of, of that. You think, well, that makes no sense. Why would people do that? But let me just give you an example. And I'm not going to name names because I'm not here to assault um, different denominations. But I will just tell you that um, within the last couple of weeks, I had a conversation with um, a, a Christian I know of longstanding, solid Christian who decided to attend a Bible, um, a Bible class in a mainline denomination at the request of a friend. So, okay, I'll go with you. And, okay, nobody here would know, so I'll just tell you that this was a a Lutheran church in the north part of Puget Sound. So they're attending, and the person teaching the class is a, um, I don't know if they call him a pastor there or a minister, but he's the head of that particular fellowship. He'd be like the senior pastor would be to us. And and so they're in this class, and they start in Genesis, and they're going through the book of Genesis, and, and basically they're being taught that all of these, these stories here are all myths. They're not really true. And a conversation comes up, and of course this Christian is going, oh, wait a minute, not so much, not too sure about this. And um, so this conversation starts in the class. Um, uh, there's a passage in Genesis 1 uh, where, where the scripture literally says, let us make man in our own image. The scripture doesn't say, I will make man in my own image. Let us, it uses a plural form. Question. Why does the scripture, this is the pastor asking the class, why does the scripture use this phrase, why us, why the plural form? The person I'm talking about goes, "Um, I have an idea. This is an example of, in the Old Testament, this is an example of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, showing up in the very beginning of the scriptures, one of many places. Answer, no, that is not true. That is an example of God being sensitive to gender neutrality. Okay, I'm just telling you a fact. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the point is that mainline denominations drift away from the teachings of the Word of God for whatever reasons. Okay, reel in your hearts now. Don't be judgmental. <laughs> Later in this sermon, you'll be glad if you're not judgmental right now. Okay, I promise you that. Okay. So uh, the, 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 they drift away from the Word of God. And 
So from that drift, uh, the body of Christ, remember we're flying over at 30,000 feet. I'm going to need to keep moving here. Um, we come to fundamentalism, which is um, you know, where people say yes to the Bible basics. However, fundamental has its own, fundamentalism has its own problems. They start to attach all kinds of extra things, stuff that's not in the Word of God. Yeah, we believe these Bible basics. Jesus died for us. sins. oh, wait, and you've got to do this too. It's Jesus plus some stuff. And um, over time, that doesn't fly with many people, and we get to um, evangelistic, the evangelistic movement, which you and I are a part of. We got our own issues. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And um, you know, evan- uh, the evangelistic church basically says yes to the Bible, yes to the gospel, yes to the Bible basics, but they say no to mainline philosophies. They say no to uh, fundamentalism because they, you know, which believes the Bible is true, but is always angry. It seems like. And adds this stuff. And I say it's always angry. Lisa and I would go on vacation and to a certain place that we haven't been to for a while, but we would go. And, and every time we would, went, there was this car and had all these signs on, it, on the outside talking about God. I have no idea what they actually said, but what my memory says they said is, you're all going to hell. It's like there's this angry thing. It's like I'm thinking, okay, I wonder how many people are going, oh, I'm so glad for the sign in your car. How do I sign up? Nobody does that. <laughs> Nobody does that. So that's the, the viewpoint many times of fundamentalism by the evangelistic church. You know, yeah, we believe in the Bible basics, but you're angry. Stop being so angry. And don't add all this extra stuff. So evangelism comes along. And, and you're, you're in an evangelistic church by that definition. And I'm not going to go into the definitions right now, but I'm just going to say we're kind of in that vein. And I believe that we are in zero danger um, of falling into the legalism of our fundamentalist forefathers. But, but, over several decades, there are a lot of surveys. So you could stack up the surveys, they all the same, same things, same, same statistics, and it's kind of beyond dispute. Evangelicals have increasingly drifted through concern over legalism into license. So that now, today, every survey, in, in virtually every survey, we are virtually indistinguishable from our non-believing neighbors. Same rates of divorce, same rates of addiction, same rates of suing each other, same rates of all of these things that don't constitute the biblical description of, uh, called holiness. And our stronghold smasher today is not a strong message about changing your behavior. It's instead, it's a, it's a fresh view of the holiness of God. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, come on, Terry. Maybe that's some evangelical churches, but I come to Crossroads because, you know, that's why I come here, because we teach the Bible here, and, um, and, and, and we're serious about the Bible, we're serious about holiness. The problem comes up when, you know, we want to compare ourselves to all of the other boats that are floating in the water. Then we lose the perspective of how far we've floated from shore. And shore is the character of God. It is the holiness of God. Isaiah chapter 6 is going to get us there, and it gives us this benchmark. This, it shows, it shows, gives us an idea of what Christ accomplished for his sincere followers. And I want to start with this very first thought today. God is infinite holiness. Uncountable holiness, immeasurable holiness, unfathomable holiness, unalterable holiness. 
God is uncountable of holiness. He is unfathomable holiness. (laughs) Isaiah 6, chapter 1. We're going to pick our way through this real slowly, by the way. In the year that King Uzziah died, now, let me give you about background. Let me stop quickly here. Uzziah was the king for about 52 years. He was a fixture in Israel until leprosy took his life. And <clears throat> his name is really close to the author of the book, Isaiah. Don't confuse them. Isaiah was a prophet during Uzziah's reign, but he also was a prophet during the reign of four other, three other kings. So um, he, 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 I, I believe that the book of Isaiah is absolutely one of the high points in all of Scripture. Isaiah, um, it, it's, just, it's just treasured. He was called to, to, to teach holiness, to speak holiness um, to the affluent leaders of his day. And he preached about the holiness of God, um, and he, he ministered without compromise in a day of moral decline. Things were auguring into the hillside, and, and his writings in the, in the Hebrew language are probably, um, his language is probably the, the finest and the most eloquent um, that you will find in the Old Testament. Some people think he was maybe the greatest prophet for different reasons. Um, you, know, you know, Jonah ran. He took off. He didn't want to cooperate with what God, God wanted him to do. Jeremiah wept. Um, Habakkuk kept crying, how long, how long, God? But, but Isaiah stood his ground and preached holiness in the face of real moral decline in his culture. And so that should give us a sense of who we're hearing from. Okay, so in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now, notice right off here, in case you don't know about your scripture, that this is not the all caps Lord, upper L, upper O, L, upper R, upper D. When you see that in scripture, that is God's covenant name. That's, that's typically a translation from what we would say is Yahweh which is the personal, um, <clears throat> that's the personal name of God. It's, um, it's, it's personal. It's the warm God. It's the intimate God. Um, instead, he's seeing lowercase Lord. Now, we're not told in this circumstance whether Isaiah was awake or he was asleep, whether this was a vision or a dream or he was, you know, whatever, but he was somehow supernaturally um, transported to the very throne room <laughs> of the God of the universe. And in fact, um, John chapter 12, um, he, he, tells, he points out that Isaiah was actually seeing the pre-incarnate Christ here. He's actually looking at Jesus on the throne. And so he's actually gazing upon the creator here, the second person of the Trinity. And in fact, John tells us in, um, in, in, here's how we in part know that it's Jesus and it's not God. John in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, no one has seen God the Father. No one has seen him at any time which includes Isaiah chapter 6. The only begotten son who is, the bosom, is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. That's how we know God the Father, because Jesus has shown him to us. So Isaiah is not seeing all uppercase Lord, Yahweh, but he is seeing lowercase Lord. He's saying, I saw the ruler. I saw the king. I saw number one in the universe. And what he's seeing is a vision that we desperately, desperately need renewed in our day. And then the Holy Spirit goes on in some more detail. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. One translation I looked at says, lofty and exalted. And I think the primary reason that the church has lost some of its moral vision is that we've lost lofty and exalted God. Embracing 
the comfort of, of his nearness, we've lost the compelling force of his transcendence. God is not the man upstairs. God is not some affable guy in a white lab coat. He is not George Burns with a smile. God is ineffable glory. He's, there are not words to describe his glory. Timothy, in his description, he, he, he says in 1 Timothy 6, he says that God dwells in unapproachable light. I'm a little bit of a science nerd. I don't know what that means. It's amazing, though. So the Lord him shows himself to Isaiah, and Isaiah sees him seated. He's seated on a throne. God is seated on a throne. He's not, he's not pacing back and forth. He's not wringing his hands. He's not trying to figure things out. He sees him exactly the way he is right this moment, seated on a throne. The seated sovereign, regal. I think one preacher um, I, I listened to described God as saying, you know, he, he rules the universe with his feet up. I mean, I mean, the picture there is, you know, it's maybe me on a Sunday afternoon, kind of like no cares in the world because I'm not awake. Like, and <clears throat> that's not God. But the point is that he could have made 10 more universes just like this one, and it would not have strained him one little bit. He's not even in the realm of being challenged by things. He, he's not a little bit better than us. He's not a little higher than us. He's not a little more than us. He's not a perfected version of us. All of those are lies of the enemy that are present in, in the cults of our day, and, in, and those, those are lies that are present in the cults of any day. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train is the part of the outfit that shows the honor, right? Okay, so trains on clothing are something that we really don't see anymore except maybe at a formal wedding, right? Okay, so um, <clears throat> I think uh, on the left is Kate, uh, is, it, is it not Kate Winslet? What's her name? <laughs> Who's this woman on the left? She's the, come on, Lisa, help me out. Yeah, Kate, 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 okay, I had Kate right, right? Thank you, okay, so, okay. And then, of course, this, this other one, you can't see her face, that's Princess Di. And um, <clears throat> the, the train, keep those up for just a minute, if you would, Amy. The train of the robe, it, it, it's just a symbol of grandeur. It's a symbol of splendor. It's, it's the length of the train that makes the statement, right? Ladies, um, you can take those down if you want. Anybody here, when you got married, you had a beautiful white gown with a train on it? Any ladies? Wow. I didn't expect, wait a minute, keep your hands up for a minute. Did any of you, a way to go on your train, did any of you actually have a train that was long enough to go down the aisle, out the door, and out in the street and around the corner? <laughs> okay, all the hands went down. I get that. <laughs> because you're thinking, hey, if I did that, somebody would have said to me, you know, who does she think she is, the Queen of England, right? Actually, I think the Queen of England, you know, does consider it appropriate, and I don't think anybody would complain if they had a long one, and, and because it's the length of the, the, the train that's the symbol of splendor. And Isaiah points out, so he says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Back and forth, back and forth, doubling and redoubling. Now, my mind, I go off on this little nerd rabbit trail. 
I'm not thinking fabric anymore because we're told he lives and exists in unapproachable light. Maybe it's this complete conjecture. I want to picture that it's this. It's not light like we have in this room. That room is lit. It's its its, its own light source, maybe, and it goes back and forth and back and forth, and it doesn't say it covers the floor. It fills the temple back and forth and back and forth and stacking up, and somehow you can see the other stuff. I don't know. I got a crazy imagination. That's the little boy at me in life. The point is that it's dramatic. It fills the temple. This is an awesome scene. And the splendor, he can't even take it in. It's like when you see something, have you ever actually seen something that the splendor of it was so majestic you couldn't speak? It's happened to me once in my life. I've told you about this, I think I mentioned before, when Lisa and I went a couple summers ago, and we were in Grand Teton Park when the total eclipse went over, and it was more than an odd event in nature. I mean, I get the science. I'm, I'm a nerd, okay? I get it. I enjoyed it, and we were there, and we situated ourselves, and it was dark before we started, and we went the whole I mean, all this stuff going on. But when that moment came, it was so beautiful and so moving I couldn't speak. Do you remember? I mean, it's like, I said, okay, when's the next one? I'm not kidding you. It's in 2024 in Texas, and I'm going. <laughs> the Lord willing. It was, I really could not speak because of its majesty. I could see why primitive cultures would go, oh, like what was going on? Okay, something is going on here that way exceeds a solar eclipse. So he looks around and he continues. Above him stood the seraphim. Now these are angels. And notice that these angels are standing. They're upright to serve the seated sovereign. Literally, the Hebrew word here is seraph, which means burning ones. Let that inform your mental image here. Okay. Each had six wings and two, with two he covered his face. So even these lofty creatures, are they dare not look upon him. So they cover their faces so that they can't be seeing. Or see. I don't know what's going on there, but they're covering up. And with two, he covered his feet. So they're floating. They're not standing on their feet somehow. Um, and and I, I don't know why they're covering their feet other than because maybe they've gone on missions of ministry somewhere and maybe they've tracked back with them something that dare not be in the presence of a holy God. I don't know. It's not described here. That's what many theologians believe, that they're covering their feet and they're covering their eyes. And it, interesting, then, then, and then with two, he flew. So it's interesting, you know, if you want to get into the, the numbers here, four of the six wings reflect the way that the seraphim are relating to God and two of them are being used for serving God. You see me flap my wings there for a minute? <laughs> and all of these verbs, covered and flew, they're continuous action. Their motion is ceaseless. And it's like they're going about the, the bidding of an almighty God, and it's just continuous all the time. And one called to another and said, now, by the way, there's some, you know, as, as, as you study this out, some people think it's two Two seraphim. Some people think it's two rows of seraphim. I don't know. doesn't really matter to me. But it says, and one called to the other. So above and on both sides of the throne, one's calling to the other. And then the other one, one calls out and the other one calls back in the presence of God. And there's this chorus that just never ends. It goes on and on. And what are they calling out? Think of all of the things 
here we go. Now think of all of the things. I, I, I know the answer's in front of you. Okay, so you already know the answer. But think of all of the things that our church culture might suggest that evangelism might put on the lips of these. If you didn't already know the answer, the, the, the things that our culture, our, our church culture might say is loving, loving, loving. It's true. Loving, true, that's true. Or other things, you know, patient, merciful, full of grace. And all these things are true about God. But none of them are so foundational as, as what they're actually saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I can only be lame as I approach reading those words. It's almost a mistake for me to le read those words. If you want to know the God of the universe, there's some things that you need to understand. A couple of things. First, we'll start with this. God is holy. He's holy. And you need to understand by definition what that word actually means. Holy, the word means separate. It's translated as separate, now, but not separate like, like apart or distant or far off. This is separate like other. Theologians like to use the phrase holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. You know, um, you know, distinct, completely distinct, not, you know, not in any significant way like us. Okay, another word that we need to know is transcendence. God is transcendent. The, the idea is that God is, is both the unknown and the unknowable. Yes, you know, it, it, yet somehow God continually wants to reveal himself to creation. The unknowable seeks to be known. So to do that, he sent his son. That's why he sent his son, which leads us to the third word, imminence. The idea here is God is near. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 1. And evangelicalism has really, really emphasized the nearness, you know, how close we are, the near, the loving, the gracious God, the warm, the kind, the compassionate, all of it's true. It's all true. Say it's true. It's true. But truth in isolation is imperfect. When we just teach that part without the whole, we kind of distort the part even. And loving and gracious and patient and kind, that's eminence, taught without transcendence, taught without this ongoing chorus of holy, 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 that has a tendency to deify man and to humanize God. And then in the end, we're left with just this viewpoint an incorrect one of God that's impotent and, and God entirely unable to help us in some of the very basic things that which to him are actually no challenge at all. And again and again and again in Scripture, we see, we see the question posed over a hundred times in one form or another, is anything, is anything too hard for God? That question show is all over in Scripture at least a hundred times. And when you read that, when you encounter that question in Scripture, if what doesn't immediately come to mind is is um, this picture of the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, his train fills the temple, holy sheriff, seraphim, holy, holy. If that doesn't come right to the front, transcendent, transcendent, you know, separate, other, not like us. If you're caught up 
so caught up in his nearness and in his closeness that you've lost the vision of God on the throne. Then he somehow translates into our heart as just kind of more like a convenience. He's, he's this opportunity to upgrade our earthly life while we still can. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Note the repetition. It's an idiom in the Hebrew language that, that repetition signifies force. Okay, we don't really have that in the English language. I mean, it kind of shows up sometimes. But it's, it's, it's a common idiom in, English, in, in Hebrew where, like, for example, if I said to you, I fell into a pit, you'd go, oh, I, looks, I hope you're okay. You know, if I said, I, fell, I said to you, I fell into a pit pit, you would go, well, oh, that's, that's pretty serious, and um, I'm, you'd be kind of surprised I got out. If I said to you, I fell into a pit, 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 you'd be surprised I was literally able to talk to you about it. How could a problem of that magnitude even be resolved? The whole earth, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This word, holy, kadash, it's the superlative word in, in, in Hebrew. It's, it's repeated three times. There's no way more to, to be more emphasis on it in the scripture than that. It's the most that could be said. Exodus 15, it said, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises and working wonders? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's no place on earth. There is no square inch in the universe where your eyes could ever see about which God cannot declare, that's mine because I made it. There's a God who made all this. And he fitted it together with beauty and choreography. And Isaiah sees this scene, the Lord, the robe, the, the burning seraphim. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Awesome. <laughs> you know, and then... Very quickly, self-awareness comes upon Isaiah, and all of a sudden he's thinking, lest he be consumed in another moment by this unspeakable, unsearchable, unalterable holiness of God, and he says, woe is me. Isaiah is now aware of his moral unworthiness, which expresses itself in, in, in terms of terror. Now that... <laughs> loved ones, is a vision of God that we've lost in the evangelical church. Our view of the highness and the holiness of God, sometimes <laughs> we joke about it a little bit, um, that maybe sometimes some of the songs that we listen to that maybe we would consider worship songs sound more like something you would sing to your boyfriend than to the creator, the holy God, creator of the universe. Now, listen, I would never stand up here. I'm not talking about, I feel like we are very well led. But we have to be careful because our tendency is to want to sing to the boyfriend rather than to kneel to the throne. I think we do a great job of being led, by the way. I, I would never, ever question that. I, think that's, I don't feel that way. But I'm watching it happen in the body of Christ. Please, please don't go nuts on me now. Please don't lose your balance. 
I like those song styles. We have them in our worship inventory, and there's a place for them. And while the intimacy in them is real and genuine and personal and experienced, it has to have with it the woe is me awareness of God's transcendence, an awareness that gives to me the sense that though he loves me dearly and though he forgives me completely, I cannot just do everything I want. So, <laughs> leading to this stronghold smasher that's so serious and so seldom see, verse, verse 5, and I said, woe is me. So now get in the scene here. Isaiah is, is he's being called by God. God's giving him this vision. He's supernaturally allowed to see it. He's seeing something that none of us have seen. And now he's responding. He's declaring um, the reality that, that, you know, that exists and that every day, that, that someday every one of us is going to face. This, this, his first response is, woe is me. Now, this word woe, literally it means calamity has fallen or it's about to fall. Okay, so who, who, he's thinking, who can stand before this God? Who can stand in his presence? And then he says, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. He says, you know, the things that come out of my mouth, the, even the things that I haven't said that I thought about saying, I, I don't even have to consider what my hands have done and what my feet have done. I, I'm just simply destroyed by the words that have come out of my mouth in the presence of God's holiness. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This by the way, is always the response of people in Scripture who have real encounters with God. Uh, Abraham. Abraham is having a, a discussion with God about the problems of Sodom and what God plans to do. And <clears throat> Adam starts out with, uh, <laughs> I'm but dust and ashes. He's, he's Peter. Here's another example. Peter is a fisherman, and Jesus comes along and says, Does, do this, and and all of a sudden, they catch all this fish, and the realization comes upon Peter. This is not just some dude. This is guy. This is, this is God. And he says, depart from me, O Lord. I'm a man of sin. John, in, in, in Revelation chapter 1, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I fell at his feet as though dead. And here's Isaiah saying, woe is me. All real contact with God produces a sense of unworthiness. It does. And that's the stronghold smasher. Here's our one sentence um, summary for today. I am a sinful person. Yeah. <laughs> I know some of you are saying, how long is this series going to go, Terry? Because, um, you know, Christmas is coming. I'm saying, a couple more weeks, we're going to do Christmas. It's coming, okay, I promise you. But the summary here is, I am a sinful person. Yeah, I'm gospel-graced. I'm, I'm saved, and it's radical, my salvation. But I remain in my human condition. I, I am sinful. I'm not yet holy. I'm not yet righteous. And this condition of taking the gospel of grace and converting it into I'm awesome, that's what the Bible calls self-righteousness. And that's why it's a stronghold you have to have this in your theology. I am a sinful person. Understanding I am a sinful person helps you to understand and see yourself. You know, I'm blessed. I'm graced. God has been merciful to me. I'm, I'm not better than my neighbor. I'm not better than the people marching in the protest parade. I'm not better than anybody. I'm saved. 
when the lifeguard pulls a drowning person out of the water, they put their arm around him and they swim to the shore and they pull him out. The saved person doesn't jump up and say, I'm awesome. <laughs> right? They say, thank you for saving me. I was dead without that. But it's amazing how somehow evangelism as a whole, I'm speaking here, and that includes us, how we sometimes have become maybe through the decades just a little bit harsher, a little more judgmental, a little more hard, harder on each other, a little harder on everybody else, a little you know, more selfish, more in, insistent that, hey, would you stop with your sinful behavior so I can enjoy my life more attitude and, you know, God forgive us, more self-righteous, more self-righteous. The gospel is Jesus righteous. But evangelism has frequently made the gospel into me righteous, me better, me blessed, me, me, me. Okay, so we're about done. You might be self-righteous if, I got a short list for you. <laughs> you might be self-righteous if, one, you have a false standard for measuring righteousness. You know, things, you have a list of things not as explicitly stated in Scripture that you've decided are the important things. You know, somehow God inspired the Bible, but somehow, even though the Holy Spirit didn't happen to list, you have the updated version... <laughs> I sound so snide up here. And you, and you think you know better. And, and we tend to judge and assess other people by, that don't conform to those standards, you know. And we have a standard, how she dresses, how he dresses, how she does her hair, what he drives, you know, where they live, how they, you know, raise their kids, how they entertain themselves. He's still smoking? Uh, you know, sometimes I come to church and I see somebody outside putting out a cigarette when I arrive. Hi, Terry. I love this church. I'm telling you, I love this church because I was raised in a church where, you know, if, if, if that was happening and the pastor was coming, quick, put that out before he sees it. And that's just not Jesus. It's just not Jesus. I, I, Crossroads needs to be a place where anyone can embrace Christ. By the way, smoking is not an indicator of whether you've embraced Christ. Okay, so... God forgive us for that. Okay, another, another reason. You might be self-righteous if, 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 too, grace is a one-way street. Have you ever been caught in a city downtown and it's all one-way streets? I mean, you know, Lisa and I went, we were in Dallas a few years back for a four-square thing, leaders thing going on there, and we had a couple hours. I said, I want to go see the grassy knoll. Right? <laughs> Remember? <laughs> I'm going to go see the grassy knoll. So, Downtown Dallas in Dealey Plaza, it's all one-way streets. I'm just warning you right now. And we found it. We were a block away on, on my GPS. It, we had to drive two miles to get there because every time I followed the one-way street, I couldn't turn left, I couldn't turn right. It was terrible. You can't get anywhere with one-way street. Some people have a one-way street when it comes to grace. I need it, I need it, I want it, I want it, but they don't give it out. They don't give it to their wife, they don't give it to their kids, they don't give it to their husband, they don't give it to anybody. If you struggle with grace as a one-way street, you might be self-righteous. Number three, you might be self-righteous if I'm better than, and then fill in the blank. I'm better than those addicts. You know, are you? Really? You have one of the safer addictions then, just like eight cups of coffee before? <laughs> or two hours maybe on Facebook because your addiction doesn't require rehab? Paul... Paul basically said in 1 Corinthians, I, I will not be brought under the power of anything. If you, have, 
anything other than the Lord, I'm not better than anyone because, you know, I'm not better than anyone. I'm not better than anyone. I'm not better than anybody that's a, a new Christian. I'm not better than anybody that's a baby Christian. I'm not better than lost people. I'm not better than alcoholics. I'm not better than, than gay people. I'm not better than the guy that steals stuff at the office. I'm, I'm, you know, I might be better at covering it. Don't take that literally, okay? <laughs> I mean, I might only have Christian sins. <laughs> But when I see the holy standard, um, so a sense of self-righteousness is going to immediately vaporize. Okay, you might be self-righteous for if I'm always on the move. I'm always, you know, I have to find a new job, I have to find a, a new neighborhood, I have to find a new church, because I keep having to hit reboot, because if I stay too long in one situation, now listen, I'm not talking about when you move because of a prom promotion, or you move because you're trying to get closer to family, you got a situation, I'm talking about you move because you want to put your responsibilities for your own personal malaise, your sp spiritual dullness on other people. You know, I'm talking about when you move literally so you can protect your sense of self-righteousness. Okay, keep going, Terry. Another one, I might be self-righteous if five, when I see myself failing, my instinctual response is to cover and not confess. What am I covering? Proverbs 28 says, he who covers his sin will not prosper. What am I covering? What, 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 what am I careful to make sure nobody finds out? Okay, and then the last one, I might be self-righteous if I insist that the phrase fear of God in the Bible means awe and never terror. Be careful of that. In the New Testament, fear, uh, the word fear is in there 93 times. Phobeo is the Greek word from which we get our word phobia. And 93 times it means fear, dread, terror. One time it means reverence in the New Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, it's there lots of times. It's, of course, it's not the Greek word. It's uh, mostly Hebrew word, uh, yara. And it, it, same thing, fear, sometimes reverence, sometimes dread, sometimes terror. If, if you insist, you know, if we think that there's nothing about God that we should be afraid of, then I need to ask you the question, why do you need to be concerned about hell? Here were the words of Jesus. Here's just one example. I'm not, I wouldn't parry, uh, cherry pick for you here, but uh, this is just one. This is the words of Jesus. And he's using the word fear, phobeo, twice in a sentence, Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear, do not phobeo those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't be in terror or dread of murderers. Rather, fear, same word. Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Choosing to believe that the word fear of God, which is encouraged over and over and over again in Scripture, only means awe, actually harms us by removing the consequences for sinful behavior and sinful beliefs. The great theologian and philosopher Mick Dundee <laughs> said, me and Jesus, we're mates. That's really a cute movie line but it oversimplifies the reverence and the awe of God. I'm really okay with you being friends with God. I am a friend of God. We sing that song. I like it. It's true. It's not the full picture. Isaiah was laid out. He was, 
He was taken apart. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And yet what's here so awesome about that king? When the king was walking with Abraham and having that discussion, he patiently heard Abraham's pleas for mercy for the people of Sodom. And then God showed mercy. Even though Peter said to Jesus, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Jesus reached out, grabbed him and said, no, 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 come on. And he made him one of his disciples. Even though John fell at the feet, at God's feet in, in the revelation as though dead, it says, verse 17 says, but he laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. It's always the same. It's his holiness, my sinfulness, then his grace. Here it is in, in verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. This is going on a thousand years before the cross. And this idea was not the angel's idea. This was directed by God. Can we all agree that the angel didn't do, hey, I think here's what we'll do. No, he was working at the bidding of Almighty God. And, it, and the text doesn't com, contain the command, but it's implied here. The angel does the Lord's bidding. A holy good, excuse me, a holy God, he's looking upon the sinfully aware. Not on the self-centered, self-righteous. He looks at this sinfully aware man, and then he says, go get a coal from the fire, Go get something that has spent its life in a sacrifice. And these sinful lips then become purged of their sin. And he's declared, paid for, covered, forgiven. As evangelicals, we'd be better at rejoicing about the gospel if we followed this faithful path that we see in Isaiah. We recognize his holiness, God's holiness. We see our sin. We recognize our unworthiness and then we receive his grace gratefully and then live not as a self-righteous person but as a gratefully forgiven person wanting to see other people experience the same. Let's pray. Lord, today, I want to just declare in this prayer, you are holy. You are holy, God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy are you, Lord. Worshiping you, I declare it, you are holy, Lord. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. You are El Elyon. You are the Most High God. Holy are you, Lord. Holy, Lord, over every circumstance. Holy over all the earth. Holy over the temple. Holy over all creation. Holy are you, Lord. I feel inadequate, Lord, to declare that. It's so lame to just say that but I declare it, holy are you, Lord. I say it with my lips, I say it with my heart, I choose it with my very being to declare it, holy are you, Lord. We declare that you are holy today. Holy are you, God. Yes. Forgive us, Lord, when we become overly familiar. It's so true you want to be our intimate God, and you are, but it's also true that you are the God seated on the throne, and your train fills the temple. We worship you now, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Yes, Lord. Amen. Stand to our feet.